Welcome to the Mind Muscle Podcast. Here's your host, Simon DeVere. Welcome to Mind Muscle. I'm Simon DeVere. Today's episode is called The Grain-Free Monks. We're going to be going back and looking at the original gluten-free dieters. We're going back to ancient China to look at the Taoist monks who avoided grains way before any hipsters ever did. Hopefully in so doing, this will teach us not a little about history, but it will teach us a little about ourselves and the appeal of fad diets throughout history. Before we go into today's show, there is something that I've got to get off my chest. So I know most of us are still living with the reality that is the pandemic. We are getting whatever workout we can. I've been watching your workout videos on Instagram. And one thing that's driving me crazy right now, guys, is push-ups. So let's talk. When I see these included in most workouts, it seems like everybody's reaching for big numbers. Do 50, do 100, do 150. That's great. The problem with this is there is no progression going on here. People are just shooting for big numbers. The way this gets to me is I'm seeing people come in with wrists messed up, elbows messed up, etc. So real quick, let's talk about a better way to do your push-ups. So we don't have a gym. The main thing that we're missing right now is an external load. We can get a little bit more out of the push-up than just shooting for these giant numbers. What I want you to do is instead focus on tempo. So try this right now. We're going to do four seconds on a negative, two seconds on a pause, one second to finish the press. Think about this. I guarantee you haven't seen anybody lifting this way in the gym. I don't care. This is the right tempo for hypertrophy. So if you care about actually gaining muscle, you don't just care about telling your friend how many push-ups you did, try this right now. I'm serious. Get on the floor. As you're lowering down, it's going to take four seconds. One, 1,000. Two, 1,000. Three, 1,000. Four. Now you're at the bottom of your push-up. Hold. One, 1,000. Two, 1,000. Press. That's a push-up. That's one rep. I swear, if you try doing reps this way, forget about 50. Something like five to 10 is finally going to be challenging. And here's the other benefit, you're actually going to gain muscle. Time under tension is a legitimate way to increase the intensity of the workout when we don't have an external load. So if you guys are getting sick of just banging out clap push-up after clap push-up, running the numbers up, try this, you'll actually get better. I'll be honest, I only planned on talking about chest, but while we're at it, jump squats are making me sick too. So Plyometrics are one of the most overused and abused exercise in in existence right now. The the truth is these should be treated like Olympic lifts. So when I see people doing 50 box jumps back to back, this makes my knees hurt. The right way with these jumps, guys, is 10 or less. So don't just do these circuits where you just keep adding bigger and bigger numbers, more and more impact. So we got our push-up worked out. We're going to slow down. We're going to quit chasing big reps. We're going to get our tempo right. But what about legs? Legs can be a little bit more difficult to scale up without an external load. The thing I want to draw your attention to, instead of jumping around, why don't we get onto a single leg? Two great options that we'll go over quickly. One, the rear foot elevated split squat. So instead of jumping, 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 why not kick your leg back to something like a couch, box, chair, doesn't matter, whatever you've got. Now you're standing on one leg. Inhale. Let's try to do the same thing we did with that push-up. 
spend three to four seconds on that negative. When you get to the bottom, now your knee is in deep flexion, hold two seconds and then push. So this right here, this split squat is going to be far more effective for most people's legs than countless jumping squats. We don't need all that impact on the joint. We need to actually work the muscle. So with that, guys, there are two exercises you can replace all this junk I'm seeing out there in these bodyweight workouts. Get your push-up tempo right. Get onto a single leg. And you know what? One more while we're at it. If you're strong, why not try a pistol? If you can body weight twice your body weight, which was something I found myself in a couple of years ago with a barbell, uh, the only thing holding you back from doing a pistol squat is your mobility. So if you don't know what a pistol looks like, you are going to be standing on one foot and just squatting straight down, butt to ankles. This sounds crazy. I get it. But if you haven't tried this, this could be a great way to up your fitness right now, even without access to the gym. And I promise you, for most guys, what we're actually lacking here is going to be the mobility and flexibility. They're going to have to slow down, change gears, and develop different aptitudes than you've ever focused on before. If you do that, this whole quarantine period could actually be a little bit of a silver lining. But anyway, I am. I'm getting absolutely sick of these workouts where we're just chasing reps, going after big numbers. Let's work a little bit more intelligently, guys, and continue getting strong even now. There's no excuses. So again, today's show is all about the grain-free monks from ancient China. These are the original gluten-free dieters. I swear these guys were on it thousands of years before anybody you and I know, and that's hard to believe coming from someone on the west side of LA. In all seriousness, the, the people who first flocked to Taoism were suspicious of grain. They hadn't identified gluten. They hadn't identified FODMOPs, any of the very sciencey things we'll say today. Society was changing very, very quickly. People were now coming into cities. And in many ways, we can actually view their dogma and rejection of grain for what it was as a rejection of modernity. And I can't help but notice a similarity to many of, I guess, what I'm going to call purity-based diets today. We could, of course, look at lectins, GMOs. Obviously, gluten comes to mind. But there are a number of diets today that if we break them down, what they are really concerned with is purity. They've identified some part that is bad or evil or, to use the language of modernity, toxins. What you'll notice is this language is actually teeming with morality. So what are we really doing with these purity-based diets? A lot of this that I'm getting comes from a great book called The Gluten Lie from Alan Levinovitz. The way he puts it is that we will often hide our food fears in scientific sounding language. A great example of this may be the paleo dieter who will tell you that he can't eat oats because those evolved in the Neolithic. Of course, not the Paleolithic era and he is not evolved to eat this food. That of course sounds much more scientific than to say that God has forbidden them or something to that effect. So no longer do we say that foods are banned by God, but we do say that they're toxic, that we aren't evolved to eat them, etc. We still have the same food fears that were present throughout many of these dogmatic religions. And 
In some ways, I can't help but think that this wasn't all predicted by Friedrich Nietzsche and the part that nobody seems to quote on the parable of the madman. It is, what festivals of atonement shall we have to create to atone for ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? I know that's a weird place to go, but bear with me. There is a void, if you believe Nietzsche's argument, that has been left in the pit of man ever since the death of God. He does not know what direction he's going. He does not know what he's working towards. And so sometimes having something as simple as a diet to tell you what's good and bad could simply be the manifestation of this void that we see in moderns. And with that first Nietzsche reference, I do feel like I need to take a quick pause. His legacy has been a bit tarnished. What I would actually like to point out, though, that I've discovered through the great Walter Kaufman was actually... This is one of the greatest historical frauds that has been perpetuated against any writer that you can find. You, you really need to get into the dynamic between Frederick and his sister, Elizabeth. So all of the anger that most people have towards Frederick, that is deserved for Elizabeth. Elizabeth was actually a kind of hipster proto-Nazi way before the Nazi party even began she and her husband, a man named Bernard Forrester, had actually set off for South America to start their own anti-Semitic colony. They, they got a, a charter from the government. If enough people came over, there was actually going to become an official country. Definitely didn't have any mosquitoes, or so they told everybody. But once they got there, things didn't exactly pan out. One of the other things that they had kind of lied about, and this was odd among the National Socialists, but Elizabeth was telling everybody that she was a vegetarian. This gave her moral superiority. This elevated her to the top of the group. She didn't actually live up to that. She was still eating beef through reports of people. But again, this just shows how so often tribes and groups will actually use diets as sort of vows or tests of your faith, if you will. So anyway, Elizabeth Nietzsche, she fails in this colony in South America. She has to come back to Germany. But prior to that, actually, it's, it's kind of relevant to today. People started calling her out in the press. They're saying, hey, she's not really a vegetarian. There's tons of mosquitoes over here. There's nowhere to sleep, etc. Her response, fake news. She basically played out this battle in the press, refused to acknowledge any of the detractors against her. And if any of this is sounding similar, yeah, <laughs> I can't disagree. But this is the point, is that oftentimes the truth of this story has been lost, and it's frankly a lot more interesting. Elizabeth coming back to Germany times up well with Frederick's descent into mental illness, and she becomes the she becomes in control of all of his works. What some will call the seminal work of Frederick Nietzsche is actually not by Frederick Nietzsche at all. Will to Power was more or less a fraudulent recreation of Frederick's work in order to justify Elizabeth's political positions and her the rise of National Socialism came from this work, not from anything that Frederick himself actually wrote. In fact, if you wanted to find a repudiation of the philosophies that were contained within National Socialism, you may find no better writer than Friedrich Nietzsche. His prose can be critiqued. His misogyny is undeniable. But as it comes to many of the crimes of the 20th century, which he has been blamed, he is 
very uncertain about it. In his letters to his friends Franz Overbeck, he describes Elizabeth Nietzsche's husband, Bernard Forrester, the anti-Semite, as an aborted fetus. He constantly asked, actually, for the amalgamation of all nations and the destruction of peacetime armies. He even talks about how Germany was one of the lowest cultures in Europe. So anyway, the idea that German nationalism from the 20th century descended from the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche is unfortunately a widely held belief, but one that just direct engagement with Nietzsche's works himself can thoroughly disprove, as Walter Kaufman, the greatest Nietzsche translator, has firmly laid out in his works. Steven Pinker takes to Twitter periodically to say, Nietzsche isn't peachy. I just wish that he would actually read some Nietzsche instead of just quoting people periodically like an adolescent teenager. And with the Nietzsche reference, we are actually in the 20th century. And I know I promised sort of an exploration of fad diets throughout history. Let's stay right here in the 20th century. And let's pretend that you are celiac. It's early 20th century. You're celiac. What are you going to do? The accepted treatment for celiac disease back then was a diet called the banana and milk diet. And obviously to us moderns, we can look and say, what's missing? If I were to actually follow a banana and milk diet, obviously, I would not be eating gluten. So by today's scientific understanding, this diet would actually be consistent with how we might treat it. Maybe we would add a few more foods. Maybe it's a bit overly reductive. But somebody who was suffering from celiac disease would notice a removal of the negative symptoms and perhaps uh, increased quality of life, increased health. The explanation about why the banana and milk diet worked for celiacs stemmed all around enzymes and that if you ate this diet, you would have the right gut enzymes that would take care of all your problems, more or less. Sorry, I don't know the official position of this 20th century science, but that's partly because we have since moved on. Today, nobody would regard that explanation of enzymes as legitimately why celiacs are noticing a decrease of their symptoms. We have honed in on gluten now. And so if they discontinue the use of gluten, the protein part of wheat, we will notice and the improvement of symptoms that are associated with the consumption of gluten. The point of all of this is that if we had just gone with the knowledge of the day and eaten that diet, we would have noticed a diminishing of our symptoms. It probably would have followed from that diminishing of symptoms that we would have believed the explanation about enzymes and the interactions between banana and milk. Until we have further information to actually demonstrate to us what is going on, these explanations are going to seem factually accurate. This is no different than the paleo dieter telling you that the body hasn't evolved to eat it. Maybe there is some truth to the thing they have identified, but the reason they are telling you for not eating it maybe is not solid. I bring up the banana and milk diet not to cast doubt on scientific truth. The science is a process. One of the mistakes people continually make is viewing it as a body of facts. The point of science is not to sit down and memorize a body of facts like a multiplication table. It is a process. It is a way of thinking. It is the product of Francis Bacon. It is a hypothesis and it is a testable experiment. 
This is what it is when we do science. The problem oftentimes is that science becomes a belief in and of itself, and people start to believe in the results of science. Ironically, this attitude is completely unscientific. The scientific attitude is one of near constant suspicion. Among my clients and my family, there are a number that would be categorized as non-celiac gluten sensitive, and even you may be one. Up front, I don't have the answers for everything that's going on, but I also just want to point out, neither does anyone else, and nobody's being quite as honest as I am. So I think there may be something going on quite similar to the banana and milk diet and celiacs in the early 20th century and non-celiac gluten-sensitive dieters in the 21st century. Let me explain. So I have a family member who is not tested as a celiac. He has gone gluten-free and reports a number of positive symptoms that have improved. Decreases in inflammation, dark circles under his eyes that have disappeared, etc. It's gotten to the point where it's just a known and accepted rhetorical fact that he is celiac. So I bring that up over a recent meal, and then it comes up, oh, no, 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 I'm not celiac. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I bring up the banana and milk thing, and he is very, very certain, of course, that it's gluten. And I said, well, what about FODMOPs? Crickets. What is that? Okay, well, FODMOPs are a sugar that, ironically, if you were to eat a gluten-free diet, you would avoid most FODMOPs, similar to how our banana and milk dieter was avoiding gluten without knowing he was avoiding gluten. As science continues to make new discoveries, we are honing in on what is actually causing people distress. And for those who are not celiac, it's looking more and more promising that this FODMOP has a lot more to do with these gastric symptoms that many that we would describe as non-celiac gluten-sensitive do experience when they're eating gluten-containing foods. When I even start to play devil's advocate like this, it actually tends to stir up a little bit of anger and resentment. And it's it's funny because I've, I've been doing this professionally for a number of years now. And truly, talking to people about their diet, it honestly feels like talking to people about a religion. And many times people are coming to me saying that they want to change their diet or that they at least want to get a different result from their fitness. Oftentimes, I know this means that we're going to change diet. And oftentimes, I know how difficult this process is going to be. They may go in feeling as if they are some free spirit, scientific person who is willing to try and experiment with anything. Many people hold this identity while actually being quite latently religious, particularly as it pertains to their diets. As modern as we've become, many of us still are incredibly dogmatic eaters. Speaking of dogma, this entire discussion reminds me of a passage from one of my favorite books. So I think we should take a second to interject this into our discussion. This is a short passage from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some scientific truths seem to last for centuries, others for less than a year. Scientific truth was not dogma, good for eternity, but a temporal, quantitative entity that could be studied like anything else. He studied scientific truths, 
and became upset even more by the apparent cause of their temporal condition. It looked as though the time spans of scientific truths are an inverse function of the intensity of scientific effort. Thus, the scientific truths of the 20th century seem to have a much shorter lifespan than those of the last century, because scientific activity is now much greater. If in the next century, scientific activity increases tenfold, then the life expectancy of any existing truth in the volume of the hypothesis offered to replace it. The more the hypotheses, the shorter the time span of the truth. And what seems to be causing the number of hypotheses to grow in recent decades seems to be nothing other than the scientific method itself. The more you look, the more you see. Instead of selecting one truth from a multitude, you are increasing the multitude. What this means logically is that as you try to move towards unchanging truth through the application of scientific method, you actually do not move toward it at all. You move away from it. It is your application of the scientific method that is causing it to change. So I almost hesitate even offering a passage up like that in the times we're in, which some have described post-truth, because there's already so much doubt surrounding experts and science. And I don't want to contribute to any of that, but I also don't want to just gloss over this debate because I think this has actually created the space for a lot of the people to come in and question experts because most of the time, the people who are the responsible adults just ignore these things because it's difficult and most people might get lost in the weeds. But I don't care about any of that. This is the truth, is that as we increase our powers in scientific investigation, the truth is scientific truths are going to last a shorter and shorter period of time. This should not cast us into some state of doubt. This should actually just move us forward even faster. If one were to actually maintain the scientific attitude of constant suspicion, it wouldn't be a problem that we arrive at a new truth. That if in the 20th century we believed it was bananas and milks and enzymes helping celiac patients, and then we hone in on gluten and discover that that's actually what they're reacting to, and then maybe we discover in another 50 years that it's FODMAPs, and then on down the line, one could see how a new discovery could yield new knowledge. The point is to never get so dogmatic that one can't get closed off to the new discoveries, which invariably are right around the corner. Those of us in the present, however, will not have the benefit of future discoveries. Which brings me to how should one act in light of the information that we have? The truth is, it's simple. It's not easy, but but it's quite simple. And perhaps this is why I even chose a passage from Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, is that the heart of Zen, quite simply, is to know is to do. So if we have an eating pattern or way that works, do we really need to know why? Do we need to have this grand narrative about good and evil and where our choices fit in? Do we need to know some big story about the enzymes and how that affects the gut? These may be things that help us and keep us focused on eating that path. The truth is, We just need to actually eat in a way that promotes our optimal health. And I think this is frankly a lot easier than it's been made out to be. And 
the, the truth, frankly, is easy. It's, it's the lies that are really, really difficult to keep track of. And they're constantly changing in spite of the ever changing scientific truth and the ever updating literature. Believe it or not, it is actually quite easy for a human being to feed himself. It's gotten to a point where we are the only animal on the entire planet that does not know how to feed itself. And this is a situation that we have created for ourselves, the rational animals. Before I go any further, though, I should probably push back a little bit. I I could see how if you didn't know me and you just heard this, I'm probably coming off as the pro-gluten guy now. Oh, there's nothing to worry about. Scientific truth is all changing. No, please do not mishear me. So first and foremost, if you are celiac, this isn't this isn't a minor thing. This is a really real physical condition. So this is kind of what grinds me out about this is that I'm seeing people who are not suffering from real physical conditions. They're reading and hear about these things. They're popular, they're trendy, so they want to try it out. To me, this actually diminishes what's going on with people who have very, very real physical symptoms. Don't compare your very, very subtle symptom to somebody who is actually suffering from a disease. So number one, that's my biggest frustration with all of this is when people begin self-diagnosing and presuming that their very subtle, small problems must be this very, very large problem. It's insulting to people who have it. I'm not one of them, but I know plenty of people who do, and I can attest for this is not some mild bloating or something like that. These are very real very gnarly physical symptoms that none of us want. So don't, you know, don't try to convince me that your mild sensitivity is is a disease without the blood work. And frankly, that's where I would recommend you start. Listening to a podcast is not going to tell you whether or not you can metabolize gluten. You should go get the blood work done if you suspect it. And then if you're not celiac, you should be stoked. You don't want this. If If you suspect that you still are reacting to gluten... That doesn't give you the green light just because you're not celiac. There could be something else that we don't understand that works there. I can tell you that one of the things that many people do to try to ascertain whether they can metabolize gluten, which really isn't helping, is these allergy tests. Many of my clients, many of my family go out and get them, and they will interpret the presence of an antibody as meaning they are allergic. Inconvenient truth, that doesn't... We Maybe you are, maybe you're not. We don't actually know. You're not going to find that out from an antibody test. People like doing this because that's very, very quick. It's easy. You just go in, take a sample, you get the results back. Here's the truth. If you actually want to know if you're allergic to something, you're going to have to undergo an elimination diet. The reason most people don't do this, quite frankly, is because it's difficult. If you're going to do an elimination diet, we are looking at a minimum of 28 days. You are going to need to run out all of those foods, a minimum of 28 days. I'd really rather have you go for 50. But again, most people are not willing to commit that kind of time. But this is truly the only way you can find out whether you are actually allergic to a food. Run all of them out. We've gone through our 28 days minimum, and we will reintroduce these foods one at a time. If you've gone through that process, you're going to know very, very quickly whether you're having a physical symptom Now we don't have our variables all crossed up. We know exactly what is causing that for you. So to review the right way, undergo an elimination diet, reintroduce these grains one at a time. This is going to tell you more about how your body reacts to these individual grains than 
anybody is, even a peer-reviewed study. These are different subjects. We want to find out how these things impact you right here in the here and now. So now that we know how we should go about determining whether grains are good or bad for us, so to speak, I wish I had a better way to say that. Here's what most people do. So one, we've got the route of people who go out, they get their antibody tests, they see that they have the antibodies for wheat in their blood, and they presume I'm allergic to wheat. The next thing they do, they go to the grocery store, and they are shopping the center aisles where I would never tell anybody to be. And when they get to these boxed sections, instead of buying the normal boxes and bags they buy, they buy boxes and bags with the words gluten-free plastered all over them. This, to me, is the absolute worst way to go gluten-free. If Well, and first off, go to the experts in the field if you want to adopt the lifestyle. I would suggest you jump onto any celiac message boards and look at a number of the concerns that real celiac patients deal with when they go gluten-free. You're going to find there are a number of nutrient deficiencies. Grain has been fortified in this country for decades. So if you are like a typical American who's been eating fortified grain your whole life, and just in one day you decide no more, well, guess what? There's going to be a whole series of very predictable nutrient imbalances that you're going to start running as a result. And let's be honest, if you're switching over to a gluten-free diet the way most people do it, you're actually just buying a processed food heavy diet. This is essentially my biggest knock on the way most people do gluten-free is that I'm actually seeing them simply make a lateral shift from a processed food heavy diet containing gluten to a processed food heavy diet not containing gluten. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to give you a round of applause for that. This is a very, very firm lateral move. I am going to continue to ask that you actually source from Whole Foods that you actually get away from these packages and bags. And I can already imagine an astute listener trying to hone in on me right there and saying, oh, hey, that sounds like some fears of modernity right there. What do you mean unprocessed? I would like to now delineate my belief in eating unprocessed foods from this sort of history of food purity and food fads. So the real point that I'm telling you to avoid processed foods is not because I'm worried about commercial agriculture, not because I'm worried about other changes that go on in society. The reason I'm telling you to avoid processed foods is that the makers of processed foods are actually very good at their job. It's that simple. Most of these foods that are made, manufactured, processed, and sold to you in a nice bag with a great design on it, they have submitted literally thousands of different prototypes before they ever came to market with that food. These foods are engineered towards something called the bliss point. So the bliss point is an optimized function of how much you will eat. I think the best way to illustrate this is if we think back to the old Lay's potato chip slogan, we all know that, bet you can't eat just one. Well, it's not just a great slogan, that is nearly a scientific fact. And if you are sourcing your diet from processed foods, I don't care if they have all the latest and greatest buzzwords on there. Another one you're probably seeing in your stores right now is plant-based. Great goal. I tell people to eat plants all the time, but you're not doing it if you're buying processed foods. Go buy lentils, go buy spinach, go buy kale. You don't need a processed food pressed and formed into 
the way you're used to seeing packaged meats. This this idea is kind of laughable. And first off, I am supposed hey, if we can replace a bunch of cheap Brazilian rainforest fast food beef with people eating fast food plants, that's great. But normally I'm talking about building a diet and building optimal health. The truth is you should be staying away from processed foods. And this is not because we've descended from some pre-agricultural paradise that we are now descending and moving further away from. It's just that processed foods override your natural abilities to satiate yourself and determine when you have actually gotten the nutrition you need out of your meal. You're going to keep eating long after you're done. Just run the processed foods out and you're going to find it a lot more easy to intuitively fuel and feed yourself. And ironically, you won't need the dogma that we're all allergic to. So before I finish up my thoughts on gluten, food fads, modern diets, I actually want to take one more from the training side because, you know, right now with COVID, there's really, you know, some people have gyms closed, some people's gyms are open, there's nothing uniform. And I, I get it. A lot of people have been kind of waffling on their fitness. I'm getting a lot of texts asking about how to start back in after a long layoff. And this is one that I know a lot of people are going to need help with. So let's take a moment just to quickly talk about how you should be coming back into the gym if you are making that choice. Right out of the gate, I'm just going to go ahead and, I mean, hey, let's just address it head on. I am a trainer. I am not going back to the gym right now. This is maybe a little bit empty coming from me. The truth is I own an outdoor gym, um, so there's no point for me to go back. But I'm going to be honest, none of my clients have asked me to go back in. Like a lot of other people out there in the fitness space right now, I am adapting my business to the current reality. And I am not currently recommending that any of my clients go back into the gym, frankly, because there was nothing we were doing in there that that you couldn't do elsewhere. Before I even launch into how you should work out, I just want to be very, very clear. I don't actually think there's any reason that you do need to go back to the gym right now. I, I'm a father. I, I'm also, I'm lucky to have both of my grandmothers alive. There's just frankly too much for me to risk. We've all had these debates with our friends and family. Like many people, not so much concerned about my own health. There are other people who are counting on me and I can get my workout in other ways, so you're not going to be seeing me rushing back into the gym. That being said, I do live in reality. I have talked to some people who are heading back to the gym. I, I wish you would go and buy some equipment, learn how to work out with body weight, etc. But that being said, if you're going back into the gym right now, there, there's a right way and a wrong way to get back into working out after a long layoff. So anyway, I, I get a text from a longtime friend of mine. He's been out of working out for five months and he wants me to review his program. When I look over this, he's trying to get back into a very bodybuilding style, you know, part split, wants to look great for summer. I get all of that. The problem is you need to be really brutally honest about where you're at today. And this isn't to beat yourself up. This is going to get you a much better result over the long run. So if we are deconditioned from a five month layoff, the truth is our body isn't adapted to anything. There is no point to come out of the gate going hard. So my buddy, he wants to come in and hit his chest two times a week with three different rep ranges. I think I totaled up the presses in his workout and we're looking at 180 presses per week. I told him that volume is just ridiculous. And 
Real quick, because I'm throwing out these terms as if you know what they mean, we're going to talk about the three variables that you need to know for any strength training program. And these are going to be volume, intensity, and frequency. So volume just refers to the overall amount of weight that we are moving in a workout. Intensity is the weight on the bar and frequency is how often you are working out per week. So at any given time, I want to max out two of those variables. We are never going to increase all three at the same time. That's a great way to burn out and overtrain. This is, it's got about a two week shelf life. You can push for that, but I do not recommend it. Anyway, when we're coming back from a long layoff, the blessing is our body isn't adapted to anything. So we want to start actually with the smallest amount of work that we can do to elicit the largest response possible. So specifically what I want to see from my buddy coming back, and I think this would be a great program for anybody who's had a long time off, is just simply train the fundamental movements to get stronger. What do I mean? The fundamental movements, push, pull, hinge, and squat. We can get away with as little as four movements, and you can get away with as little as 10 reps per movement. Now, you didn't mishear me, but I always have a hard time getting people to actually do this, so we're going to say that one more time. Four movements, 10 reps or less for each movement. What I would honestly want you to do is train those three to five times per week. Just depends on how much time and access you have to the gym, but start there. Again, your body has gotten deconditioned. Just bring in something novel and you're going to adapt to it. If we want to make sure that in the long haul, our program can adhere to the principle of progressive overload, which would have us doing more work week over week, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier if we don't start throwing the kitchen sink at everything. So think back to my buddy's program. He's looking in week one, 180 presses. So what are we doing in week two? What are we doing in week three, etc. And actually, I can also dive deeper in. His 180 presses are all going to be way too light. You got to take your ego off the bar and just come in where you're at. If you work much lighter and you work with a much more realistic workload, you're actually going to make your gains faster. So if we were to just take two theoretical athletes, one person jumps on my program, four fundamental movements, 10, time, 10 reps, and five days per week, my guy is actually going to get more volume done week over week for the long run than my guy who comes out of the gate guns blazing. What you can accomplish in one workout is irrelevant when you consider what we can actually accomplish in terms of a week or a month. So I know that this is not popular. This is doesn't look cool on social media, but responsible, realistic training doesn't get likes. It's not going to get you popular on Instagram. I, I get it. Everybody wants to pull out the big boxes and jump around and do impressive things. If you want to stay consistent with your fitness regimen, master the basics. You can honestly circle back to this periodically and you'll never have to do these crazy things that, that people are telling you you have to do to get in great shape. You can really stick with training the fundamental movements, train them to get stronger, and just get consistent, especially if you've taken a five-month layoff. 
If you get consistent with a program for four to six weeks and now you want to go push your volume, now you want to go try something crazy, cool, I'll support it then. But if you've been sitting down for the last five months dealing with the stress of life that we're all dealing with, I want to challenge and encourage you to just get consistent. And since we started with the weights, I actually want to take a step back. For many people, the first thing that I would actually be recommending right now is a walk. So I have a guy who's lost 25 pounds since March, since the shelter in place took place here in Los Angeles, and we've done it all with walking. This guy hasn't even stopped drinking beer like I've asked him to over and over and over again, which I'm sure a lot of us like drinking beer. I get it. But here's the thing. Don't sleep on the power of the walk. That's my point here is that I get it. There's all these great high intensity programs out there. You're getting motivated. You want to rush out. Trust me, that hype and beast mode motivation, that's going to last you about two weeks and then reality is going to settle back in. Start out with a realistic and sustainable effort. For many people, this is going to look like a walk. And I know you're thinking, oh, I'm too hardcore for a walk. What about carrying a pack? What about throwing some weight back there? I've discovered this to actually be one of the single best ways to get your heart rate in the ideal place for burning fat. So again, do not sleep on the power of the walk. For most people who have been taking time out for the last five months, that's honestly where I would start you. If if you've got a little bit more experience under your belt and you're ready to jump back in, then I would recommend training for strength. Again, training for strength is going to look really, really different from the bodybuilding magazines that I grew up with. Dating myself here, the fact that I even grew up reading magazines. But trust me, the best path forward is not going to look like what you're seeing out there on social media right now. Have enough confidence to just work small, light, with a sustainable and realistic effort. If you knock that out for four to six weeks, we'll ramp up the intensity, trust me. But right now, stress is high enough. You've taken enough time off. Just come back and get consistent first. Well, we've actually covered quite a lot of ground this morning, so I want to circle back and just rehash everything we've already talked about today. Also, I don't want this to seem like a sort of one direction, condescending type of thing. The The truth is, I myself have fallen for every single one of these ploys. That's why I can speak so passionately about not falling for them is frankly, I did it myself. So if, if it sounds like I'm coming off condescending, just please believe me. I've fallen for this myself. One of the, one of the most informative times for me actually was making this mistake for myself. And this goes back to early 2000s when paleo was sort of first making its rounds around the message boards. I was interested in it because the community I was training in at that time was moving to that direction. And my athletic goal was training for an Olympic distance triathlon. So throughout my entire athletic career, I had been eating oats as my pre-workout meal. Buying in all into this paleo lifestyle, you know, I learned oats evolved into the Neolithic. I got to run this out. So I am painstakingly recording every single calorie I'm eating. I'm recording food. I'm measuring. I'm taking things to an extreme that most people don't live with. I'm also recording my runs, bikes, and swims as I'm training for a try. And as I got into the training process, I started to watch my times get slower and slower and slower. 
The competitor in me just really wasn't okay with that. And so now I had to start workshopping what is going on with my diet. I had bought into all this dogma of the paleo diet, so it was a little confusing. The The truth was I kind of just wanted my training meal back. I was feeling really weak in my workouts. And so I just got sick of the diet, gave up, and brought my oats back. So I was now befouling my perfect paleo with this Neolithic crop. And then I watched my times get faster and faster and faster. So pretty much there, I was no longer a believer in going full paleo. Ever since then, I learned that we're all allergic to dogma. However, there was one really big benefit, and it was that I was basically able to use that time as my elimination diet. So, of course, I reintroduced the oats first, didn't have any negative physical response to that, started bringing things back in a very organized one-by-one -one manner, and I did discover, like a lot of people, that white flour is not great with me. I'm not going to come up with some grand narrative or big scientific explanation. I just want to stay with the concept of knowing is doing. After eliminating grains from my diet and reintroducing them, I can tell anybody that white enriched flour just isn't good with my body. I don't need to know any more than that. It'll be great if there's a new study to come out at some point that can shed further light. But as long as I know how to get to sorting out what I should be eating, I don't really need to know why, do I? Keep in mind, whenever you're working through your dietary issues, that these are ultimately individual processes. You're going to have to actually cultivate this real scientific mindset, not ascribe to any set of beliefs. You're going to actually need to be flexible enough to discard things that you've once believed and frankly not feel bad about it either. You just have to be able to move on, take your feedback, learn and grow. And this to me, frankly, is what I love about the scientific mindset. It isn't about being right all the time. It isn't about having the answers. It's about taking your feedback and namely your negative feedback. This is very, very hard for most people to embrace, but we frankly learn a lot more from our failures than we do from our successes. Our successes are so often going to hide so many things that we're doing wrong, and we will just leave these assumptions unchallenged, untested, and we will leave growth on the table. I like it because it allows me to work in, into the show one more time, but I don't think anybody has articulated the scientific mindset better than Friedrich Nietzsche when he said, Clever people may learn as much as they wish of the results of science. Still, one will always notice in their conversation, and especially in their hypotheses, that they lack the scientific spirit. They do not have that instinctive mistrust of the aberrations of thought which they long training and are deeply rooted in the soul of every scientific person. They are content to find any hypothesis at all concerning some matter, then they are all fire and flame to it and think that is enough. To have an opinion means for them to fantasize for it, and thenceforth to press it to their hearts as a conviction. I can't read those lines without thinking of the newly converted fad dieter. You sit down for dinner and they try to convert you to their latest cause. 
You'll meet with them six months later. They're off to a new diet and trying to convert you to that. The zeal of the newly converted is something that has existed throughout time. And if all goes well, the time will come when to develop oneself morally and rationally, one will take up the memorabilia of Socrates rather than the Bible. And I don't wish to seek out or single out the Bible. Um, we could also throw in, as, as we did in this episode, the Taoist dogmas. The point is, we want to engage this rationalistic, scientific mode of thinking, not this dogmatic mode of thinking that's been handed down. And again, as modern as we have gotten, you will see this everywhere, especially now that I've mentioned it. You're going to see it everywhere. We have people who are avoiding everything from lectins, GMOs, gluten. They're, again, I don't want to summarily dismiss every single one of these claims, but when you really dive into what these people are doing, they're scratching a lot of other itches other than just finding a diet for their optimal health. If you're seeking to improve your health, the absolute first place to start is, of course, diet. I should have brought that up even when we were talking about reintroducing a workout regimen after a long layoff. That's great. And of course, I encourage that. But really, the first place to start is your diet. And if you're going to actually get in and tease out what the optimal diet for you is, you're going to have to do this work all on your own. Honestly, even listening to me for an hour isn't going to get you any closer to it. If, if you really want to find out what foods work best in your body, then I encourage and I challenge you to get in and do this work for yourself. You're not going to be able to go and find some ancient text or even some modern text that's going to be able to tell you how you should be eating. You're going to have to go out and do that for yourself. And that's our show for today, guys. I want to thank you for staying here, listening, working on your mind, your muscle. No one else is going to do it for you. I'm Simon. I think, therefore I lift. Stay strong, people. Mind Muscle has been brought to you by The Antagonist. Visit us at antagonistblog.com.